Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. As usual, I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington, D.C., but today we're coming to you from beautiful downtown Aspen, Colorado, where we're attending Spotlight Health, which is part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. This is actually where our podcast was born. We soft-launched here a year ago this week. I think we're a little more awake today. Uh, We do have a live audience for those of you who are listening, and we'll have some special guests for this special episode. We are taping this week at noon Mountain Time on June 22nd, and just like in D.C., news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by two of our regular panelists, Joanne Cannon of Politico. Wonderful to be here. Not in a bar. And Margot Singer-Katz, The New York Times. Hello. As well as our special guests, Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado. Glad to be here. (laughs) Hometown, hometown. Hometown advantage. And and Governor Steve Bullock of Montana, nearby. Thanks for having me. Welcome, Governors. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So we're changing things up a little bit for this week's episode. All five of us will discuss the week's news and talk about state health issues. Then we'll take some audience questions so we won't have any of our regular extra credits this week. But first, I try to make a little news. Governors, you have both been mentioned as potential Democratic candidates for president in 2020. Are you running? And how big of an issue do you think health will be in the 2020 campaign? (laughs) I thought the home team always batted last. Um, uh, thank you. Every time someone asks a question, it's a tremendous compliment, and I, and I take it very seriously. Uh, and we're, you know, my wife and I have been talking about it for a couple of months and, and talking to old friends whose opinion we respect and trust. And we'll, we're going to try and sort through it uh, this summer, but we are very focused. 202 days left uh, in this term, and we want to finish strong, and healthcare is a big part of what we're pushing. And I, I think healthcare is going to be. I think the pivotal issue in the midterm elections, I, and I really believe that, not just because I'm speaking here, but because the, it is the thing that people seem to care about the most across the country, but especially in some of these swing states, and they are having pieces of their health care, of their, their predictability, their, their coverage, taken away from them for, in pieces, but you're now seeing the the active threat to people's entire coverage. And I don't think people are going to sit still for it. Yeah, and rather than just uh, 202 days, I have two and a half years. <laughs> and certainly focused principally on being governor. It's a job that I'm humbled to have, and it's a job that certainly consumes my um, time. In addition, why I'd come to something like this is that not only is healthcare important, but I think we got to focus on even saving the gains that we have. We see that at the state and the federal level. I mean, time and time again, attempts to sabotage the steps that have been made at the federal level, whereas governors like Governor Hickenlooper, myself, and Republican governors have come together and said there's a more thoughtful way to go forward throughout this. So I do think it'll be a significant issue both in the 2018 midterms and as we go on to uh, 2020 as well. Which was actually what I was asking, but 
I guess, midterms first. So there was some health news out of Washington this week. The Trump administration on Tuesday finally released its regulation allowing association health plans, which can mean cheaper but also less comprehensive plans could be available mostly to small businesses. I want to ask the governors how they think this might affect their individual states. But first, Margo, why don't you explain briefly what AHPs are and how this regulation facilitates them? Sure. So without going too into the weeds on this, the idea of the association plan is it would allow small businesses to have access to the kind of health insurance that large employers have. And the way it would work is essentially like, say you were a plumber, uh, you could get together with other plumbers around the country and you could buy insurance for your plumbers association and you could buy it as a large group. And there were there might be certain advantages that you would have, but the reality, and I'm sorry, and one other important thing that this rule said is that even if you're just a solo practitioner plumber, you could have access to insurance through the group. So it would be a way of pulling in small businesses that usually have to buy insurance through a small business market in their state or sole proprietor or kind of self-employed people who would then have access to this. And the concern, I think, from critics is that the way these plans would work is they might cover a little bit less than health insurance in the individual and small group markets now. And also that the pricing would be per plumber, per plumbing business. And so that might mean that um, if you're a sicker plumber, uh, it would be more expensive for you to buy through the association than to buy in the normal market, so you wouldn't choose to sign up. Uh, if you were a healthier plumber, you might prefer the association. And so there is some concern that what might happen is that the remaining people who are buying the normal small group insurance would be all the sick plumbers and roofers and other people who can't get access to an association at a better price. And so it would be a way of kind of splitting the market in two. But the Trump administration is really proud of this regulation. Their view is that it's just a way of providing more affordable options for people who are really struggling to afford insurance in the Obamacare markets. And there is some ability for states to regulate these plans and make sure that they're not going to just take people's premiums and go out of business, which I think was a concern by a lot of people at the time that this regulation was first proposed. And I think it's important to note that there, when we talk about the ACA, the Affordable Care Act markets, we're usually talking about the individuals, individuals and families buying. There is a part of the ACA that was for small businesses called the shop exchanges. They never really took off in most states. We don't even talk about them very much, but the concept I mean, had we been in a different universe where there was a bipartisan desire to fix the ACA, that concept of small businesses, you know, Nevada plumbers or whatever, you know, um, could have pulled to could pull together and and get some of that buying power while also getting the benefits that the ACA plans required. That these plans are not going to have all the basic benefits that are currently required in the exchange plans. So, governors, this is just the latest effort by the Trump administration to make the Affordable Care Act work less well, or not work. Um, and I include in this the repeal of the individual the penalty, the individual mandate. So, you know, you ask, starting in 2019, you won't have to pay a fine if you don't have insurance. How is this affecting the market, the individual market in your states, and what are you doing to try to keep that market viable? Governor and I think you're right in as much as we can look at two things. We saw vote after vote after vote to just scrap the whole thing, an attempt to really sabotage the extant system that we had. And then even as they said, all right, we're pull, pulling back on cost-sharing reductions. Well, some of our folks, uh, some of our insurers in Montana said, all right, based on the uncertainty, we're going to have to raise rates substantially higher than it would have otherwise been. And while it all sounds 
wonderful when you're both doing two different things, one of which is you're peeling back some of the essential benefits that we ought to be able to rely on as insured, and second of which, just like with the individual mandate, what you're doing is adverse selection, so you're trying to make it that much worse for those um, that probably need insurance the most. So I, look, it, it's not, you know, time and time again, in some respects, I think, um, both the insurers and the insureds are being whipsawed, like what's the next thing that's gonna come out of Washington, D.C.? I always say it's easy to do things in D.C. because they can just talk about it. We as governors actually have to live with the consequences. I mean, we have to live with the fact that, okay, we've expanded Medicaid to 94,000 Montanans, and we have great things to say about it. So continuing uncertainty in any of these areas are certainly concerning to me, and I don't think that this latest is the silver bullet to either build upon what we have, and it's more apt to try to find ways to further erode what we have. And I think it is a, a way to circumvent state protections that different states put in place. Uh, the, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners has opposed consistently similar efforts in the past. And I think you know, the small group markets have been pretty stable. Uh, maybe not utilized as fully as we would hope, but uh, at least in Colorado, pretty stable. This has a great potential to drive, you know, the, to attract the healthiest people to these markets, as, as Governor Bullock was describing, and thereby destabilize uh, the small group markets. And I think that's, you know, again, it's not death by a thousand cuts. It's, they're, they're trying to, uh, you know, implement death by, let's call, 15 or 20 cuts. Machetes. The machetes, right, exactly. Yeah. Death by a uh, dozen machetes. That's going to be your But are there stick. things that you can do? I mean, are there things that you have done in your state to try and restabilize it? I mean, New Jersey has, you know, put back its own individual mandate. Right, well, we, and we can do that, and I think most states, uh, most progressive states are in the process of, of doing that in, in one way or another. Doing uh, that in terms of the mandate or other stabilization? The, the, the mandate and other sta stabilization as well, more the mandate. The, uh, I mean, the mandate obviously has constitutional challenges around pre-existing conditions, which is something else that the president, not quite so recently, but decided that that should be another machete cut. Uh, and it... You we'll know, get if you, to that. Yeah, if you, if you look at the ultimate risk that comes from, you know, the uh, getting rid of the mandate, that's I think part. I mean, it, it really is. It threatens the entire uh, the entire system. Yeah, and we haven't. If if we had a legislative solution for every time the president either did something or tweeted, we'd have people serving 365 days a year in our state legislature. I think that. From my perspective, our legislature doesn't meet until uh, next January. Even last session, though, um, there was an effort to have health sharing ministries to circumvent all of this, and that was uh, met with a veto pen. So the, the other news out of Washington this week uh, was the unveiling of a, quote, consensus health plan offered by a coalition of conservative groups. Um, it's not all that different from the plan that didn't quite make it through at the end of last year, right, Joanne? This the no. I mean, it's the same ideas. Many of these ideas. I mean, Julie and I have been covering health a long time. Many of these ideas we've been seeing for they get repackaged, but they're like twenty-year-old ideas. So the the so-called consensus plan is a, a sort of a variant of sort of a 
first cousin once removed from Graham Cassidy or not maybe, even Maybe remote. like a first cousin. Just a I don't first know. cousin. I don't know if it needs to be removed. It's not like a sibling, but it's pretty, pretty close. Yeah. yeah. It's, basically a, <laughs> it's basically a block um, without all the other bells and whistles. It's basically the concept is you take the money from the exchanges, you take the money from the Medicaid, and you give the states a block grant, and that block grant does not grow. It's less money and a lot less money over the years. The, uh, I don't, there hasn't been a score on this one. The, the one that failed last September would have taken, uh, I think, a trillion dollars, am I remembering right? A trillion dollars out of Medicaid over a decade, which would have created enormous headaches. Uh, headaches isn't even the right word for it. I mean, more, how do you c cover poor, sick, elderly, vulnerable people with a trillion less dollars? And the governors were one reason it didn't go through. I mean, I think that we, we don't have a lot of bipartisanship, but I think that was an, um, a handful of governors, bipartisan, had a big impact in stopping the equivalent legislation. I don't think any of us expect it to go through, but they still need to talk about it. I mean, the, I, the all idea that underlies this plan is the idea that states would be better equipped than the federal government to figure out how to take care of people in their states, that there are different state conditions, there are different state populations, there are different state health care systems, and what the federal government should do is get out of the health insurance provision business, just give a big chunk of money to each state and say, like, you figure it out. And there are, one of the reasons why this plan is different than the plan that, that was similar uh, a few months ago is the rules for what states can do are slightly different, but I think some governors are excited about that idea. They're like, great, you know, I want to be able to run these programs. But I think most governors, you know, the sense that I get is that most states, actually, this would be an enormous challenge. Because in order to figure out what to do with this big chunk of money and how to run the entire healthcare system, the state would need to have political consensus about what the plan should be. So there would have to be, you know, legislative vote to say, we're going to do this plan that's going to, you know, replace Medicaid with this, that's going to replace the exchanges with that, that's going to have an individual mandate or not. These are very complex and controversial issues and then they would have to actually operationalize it in a relatively short period of time like actually figure out are we gonna have a computer system where people sign up for health insurance are we gonna bring in private insurance companies to you know adhere to various rules and and we learned with the launch of the Affordable Care Act that so actually remember healthcare.gov yeah so <laughs> they had four years to get healthcare.gov off the you know uh, uh, out and it was a huge disaster. It was really a challenge, and the first year was quite rocky. And I think the idea that every state would be able to do this on its own in just a couple of years, which is what's contemplated by these plans, um, I think is a, probably a little bit scary. I don't know. Do you, is that scare you guys, or does that excite you? Well, actually, my question for the governors too is that I mean, you are among the governors who are actually working on bipartisan efforts on health care, which we never see in Washington. Activist governors, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, and, and don't kid yourself. First of all, you're saying a big chunk of money. It's even $300 million less than Graham Cassidy, I believe, which fortunately, listening to governors, Democrats, and Republicans, they finally said, you know, this dog doesn't hunt. And you need to look at it, actually. I don't disagree that states can do a heck of a lot, and we know our populations. But by the same token, yeah, that's where... We've made a unique Medicaid program that I think is meaningful. The idea of what you're going to do is starve the states, not give them as much money to care for the folks that we're caring for today, and remove some of the rules in the name of flexibility. If you don't have the funding to do it, you know what's going to happen. Congress can say, oh, yeah, we did our job. 
but then we're the ones to pick up the pieces. And what we saw in Graham Cassidy and what we've seen initially from this is that it's not good for our economies. It's not good for the insureds, those relying on health care. It wouldn't be good for our overall health care system. I mean, I've dropped uncompensated care in the last three years by 50 percent. Well, the way that we've done that is by making a unique Montana program, but just starving the states isn't going to get us what we need when it comes to providing health care for Montanans, Coloradoans, or any other state. Well, and I think it says a lot when you've got, and in, in as, as bitter the bipartisan or bitter the partisanship is and the, and the lack of bipartisan, that you can have, uh, you know, Governor Sandoval in Nevada, you can get uh, uh, Governor Hogan in Maryland, Governor Baker in Massachusetts, Governor Scott uh, in Vermont, all uh, Republicans, not to mention John Kasich in Ohio, who was our first, our, the first one to really walk out on that plank and say, all right, I'm going to go against the entire Republican establishment and really push not to roll back Medicaid coverage. And when you get that many Republican governors siding with Democratic governors, the, the, uh, the gist becomes uh, how can Congress not respond? If we can find the compromises and say, all right, here's an appropriate, and we could, trust me, governors get it. We cannot continue to spend the kind of money we're spending on health care as a nation, and, or at least see that level of inflation. Uh, we've got to figure out ways that we can you know, uh, reduce the, the, the rate of inflation dramatically. But that being said, the way to do that is not to roll back coverage. And I think everybody agrees on that. And we were able to, we were lucky to have Sylvia Burwell, who used to head Health and Human Services and now the head of American University. But when all this letters and trying to get both sides of the, you know, Republican and Democratic governors to work on this, uh, she was great help. And Andy Slavitt is here somewhere. Where is he? Oh, there he is. He's also a great resource in the, when we're trying to pull together uh, letters that we could both get both sides to agree on. A lot of that is making sure you have the right facts uh, available in real time. It's quaint. <laughs> what, facts? <laughs> How quaint, facts. But Governor Hickenlooper, I mean, you showed up with a bipartisan health plan uh, this year. I mean, is that? Yeah, I mean, it's, and the remarkable thing is, and, and you know, John Kasich is, he is what you see on TV. He's a character, but he really understands healthcare and he cares about it deeply. As is Governor Baker in, in Massachusetts, uh, and you know, we we worked with all the governors trying to fashion a plan where you really don't look at, you know, paying per volume of healthcare provided, but let's really look at getting outcomes and let's look at how are the ways where we can get more transparency so people can see ahead of time what they're going to have to pay for one procedure or another. Let's look at are there other avenues we can get to so uh, that by, by doing more preventive health care, we can overall you know, increase the quality of outcomes at the same time uh, save money. And that's pretty basic blocking and tackling. Uh, you know, some of the basic stuff like CRUs or are, are generic almost at this point. But the, the, the willingness of a number of governors, and, I, and, and trust me, there are another half dozen Republican governors who wouldn't sign, but boy, did they want to. 
So I want to talk about Medicaid, uh, at least briefly. Um, there's a federal district court back in Washington last week heard arguments over a case that could prohibit Kentucky's work requirement from taking effect uh, as antithetical to the Medicaid program's stated goal to improve the health of low-income people. Um, Margo, what would happen if the judge finds in favor of the people who say they would lose Medicaid if the work requirement is allowed to take effect? So it's a little bit complicated. The immediate thing that would happen is that the waiver that the federal government has given the state of Kentucky that allows them to establish the work requirement would essentially get thrown out. It would no longer be approved, and presumably Kentucky could continue to have its current Medicaid expansion that's been in place for several years. But the legislature in Kentucky passed a bill that said, if our waiver gets rejected, then we're going to rescind the expansion altogether. Which and is so, about 400,000 people. I think it's around 400,000 right, so people. So it's 95,000 people that could lose uh, coverage with as a the result of the waiver, or all of them. All of them, if he feel, if they carry through on that. If threat. they carry through on that, and you know that came up in the court. The uh, lawyers for Kentucky basically said, you know, you're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater to the judge, saying, you know, if you. Uh, don't approve our waiver that, you know, because you're concerned about the subset of Medicaid beneficiaries being harmed, you're actually going to end up harming a much larger group of people because no one will get Medicaid. But, you know, I mean, that is obviously a political choice that the legislature made that they could reverse. And it's also possible that there could be some new waiver that Kentucky would uh, undertake that might not include the offending work requirement, but there's a lot of other stuff in that waiver too, and it's not exactly clear uh, whether the judge will rule that all of the parts of it are problematic. So this has mostly been sort of a blue state, red state kind of thing, but Governor Bullock, you have sort of a, a, a purple answer to this, don't you? Yeah, in uh, 2015, and my legislature is almost two-thirds Republican, uh, we passed what I think is a unique made in Montana solution for Medicaid expansion. If I go from then to now, lowest uninsured rate we've ever had, 94,000 more Montanans covered, 65,000 of them have access to preventative care. You know, uncompensated care has dropped by 50%, 5,000 new jobs a year. And we're taking care of people. It's actually saved the state money. But the other thing that we did is said, for all of that population, Montana's eight of ten of our Medicaid expansion population are working to a degree. But we actually want to not just treat these folks as a statistic, but say, can we provide some services to either have the hard to employ, get a job, or get somebody that's already working with additional skills or opportunities to um, make a little bit more money. So what Montana's done, and now we look at it from the time that we passed, 9% of our able-bodied Medicaid population, an increase in 9% non-disabled working. And we haven't seen that anywhere else. And what we've done is said, just saying go get a job or go to a job fair isn't necessarily enough. Combining that with some of the support services people need to remove the barriers, from employment, and we actually, so when somebody signs up for what we call the Help Link program to get Medicaid expansion, we'll ask them to do a survey. We've got 22,000 surveys as a result already. We've actually then had my Department of Labor, 14,000 phone calls to these people saying, come on in, let's figure out ways to move you forward. Through that, 11,000 folks have gotten services, and we know those folks that have gotten services 
Two-thirds of them, uh, actually about three-fourths of them, have increased their incomes. So there's a way to do this, actually, by working with them, not being punitive. I mean, Price Waterhouse, not, you know, this fuzzy-thinking liberal organization, said that all of these work requirements that states are putting in, what's the immediate impact to do? It's going to drop off the Medicaid rolls by somewhere between 40 and 50 percent. And I think Kentucky's not unique in as much as it'll cost more to administer the dang program than it would be to provide in health care for these folks. So hopefully um, we'll, other states will start taking a little look at the way that you can bring somebody up, not just try to punish them in getting health care. One thing that's interesting about work requirements is the, the federal government is allowing states to put them into place. So if you want to keep your Medicaid benefits, you have to demonstrate that you're either working or trying to get a job, going to school, volunteering, t doing some kind of activity. Um, and if you don't, you will lose your benefits. But the, there's not a way for the Medicaid program to provide states with money to do job services directly because the Medicaid money is supposed to pay for medical services. And so what we're seeing in a lot of these states that are putting work requirements into place is they're actually not really beefing up any kind of employment services to right. go along the, What with we it. just heard about in Montana is not the case in... Because that, I mean, I assume you guys are paying for that out of your own pocket, right? We are, and we're also doing partnerships with private employers and nonprofits. But yeah, is the aim to punish people and try to get them off the rolls, or is the aim to lift them up? I think what we're seeing with work requirements around the country, because you're not putting in the back-end services, is it's just to try to get folks off of Medicaid rolls. And that's not going to help your hospitals. It's not going to help the cost shifting. And it's, from my perspective, at least not the way we ought to be going. You know, the, one, the other part of that is that the, um, not only is it not cost efficient to do it as well, but I mean, we're 2.8% we're unemployment here right now. Last summer, we were 2.3% for most of the summer. We need every able-bodied person we get. So uh, just as Governor Bullock's saying, our labor department is going out there and partnering with uh, private, uh, private industry left and right to say, how do we get more people working? It's not a, I mean, you don't have to push very hard to get people to go out and get a job. Many of those people that aren't working and are, are uh, getting Medicaid are either giving elder care or child care. I mean, that's a, probably three quarters of the, of the total number. So uh, again, it's, a, it's sort of a red herring. I think people are trying to roll back. It's a, you know, the bias against uh, total coverage. I think there's also, in the, in, as you hear defenders of work requirements, the, the way they speak about it um, it's often, if you were to listen to them, you would think that nobody on Medicaid works. And in fact, the Medicaid, the, wor the labor force participation in the Medicaid expansion population, I haven't looked up this year's um, Bureau of National Affairs. I, I may be a few percentage, maybe a little off, because the last time I looked, it was about a year or two ago. It's very, very similar. It was like 3% difference, 4% difference. It was not, it's not like the... Uh, these are the working poor. Most, the yes, most people on Medicaid work. They either work, they're taking care of someone uh, else who can't, they're, you know, they're, or they're going to school. That's the vast majority. Or they're majority. the older uh, nursing home population, which does not have a work requirement. That's where, again, don't let facts get in the way of this overall discussion, right? I mean... But then we eight, couldn't be fake news anymore. <laughs> eight of our ten... Uh, Medicaid recipients in Montana are working. We're in like the top ten states as a result. So let's figure out the way to get more of them working where there are opportunities. Uh, let's actually cut through exactly what you're saying and say what's really behind this, these work requirements. 
But this, this court case, I think, is pretty high stakes because the Trump administration has indicated that this is a policy initiative they really want to roll out around the country. A lot of states have raised their hands, mostly Republican-led states, but not all, and said, you know, we'd really like to include a work requirement in our Medicaid program. There are a handful, including Kentucky, that have been approved, but there are other ones in the pipeline. And I think there's also a thought that maybe some states that have not yet expanded Medicaid might do it with a work requirement. And Virginia, I think, is the sort of newest example of that. Their legislature just approved a Medicaid expansion that will include a work requirement. So if the judge in this case and you know on appeals, if, if the determination is made that no, this is not allowed under Medicaid, then we'll have a Medicaid program that's somewhat similar to the way it is now. If the judge says it's allowed, I think we can really expect to see this proliferating around the country and become a more kind of permanent and widespread feature of the Medicaid program for those populations of people who are working age and don't have disabilities. And I think it's actually part of a larger conversation that's going on nationally and that was really evident in the re government reorganization plan that came out. Was it yesterday or the day before? Yesterday. And um, last year, the focus was on Medicaid. The repeal efforts on the Hill failed, partly because the governors didn't want Medicaid blown up, but it, the, the Republicans went further than repealing the, the Obamacare portion of Medicaid. They went further than, take, than rolling back the expansion in the states that expanded, which were not exclusively, but more blue states. They tried to you know, turn the entire Medicaid, the Medicaid that you've had since 1965, they tried to turn that into a block grant or a per capita cap. They overstepped. It's part of what brought down their repeal efforts. What you're hearing now is, yes, they have still plans like the one we were talking about in Heritage and talking about the per capita caps and the block grants. They're not really going anywhere right now legislatively. What you have is a different conversation about the safety net, about welfare, because that's how they're calling it. The, um, and Medicaid, in the, this administration, they refer to it as welfare, not as health care. The government reorganization plan, I mean, maybe it's a good idea to have food stamps in the same department as Medicaid. I'm not an expert on that. The governors might think, hmm, that, that isn't so, that's not such a bad idea. Make, make it more streamlined. But the, the, it's under a different frame. It's under a frame of work, more work requirements in every safety net. We have work requirements, some of the safety nets. More work requirements, more time limits, more rules more eligibility tests, and it's all be called, they want to change HHS to the Department of Health and Public Welfare, and words matter. We changed that in 1979. We had reasons for that, and they have reasons for wanting to change it again. You know, there's some people that think that there is a genetic part of almost all of us that is a revulsion at freeloaders, and that as we evolved, you know, over hundreds of thousands of years, there is that sense that the freeloader can't get a free ride. And they are preying upon that, that instinct in, in, in most of us to try and, and, and dismantle. Uh, we, I mean, we, we're not at universal health care in this country, but we've made large steps. And I think more and more people begin to look at basic health care as a right, not a privilege. And I think that threatens a lot of the people that are trying to, I mean, the, the, question, the question we should be asking, these are Republican senators and Republican congresspeople that complain almost daily about rules and regulations. Well, I've never seen so many rules and regulations get invented so quickly in just about my life. So, governors, you both mentioned this earlier, but obviously the biggest issue right now in healthcare, both politically and substantively, is cost. 
how much we're spending for not necessarily the best results. A lot of the healthcare cost problem or discussion happens in Washington um, where official Washington has not been very well able to deal with this. How are you able to deal with the cost issues at the state level? Sure, so, and it is a, uh, it's something you have to be constantly working on. And, and I think the only long-term success we're going to have is by getting the major components of cost. So the hospitals, the pharmaceutical companies, doctors, I mean, the insurance companies, everyone's got to kind of s s agree that we cannot continue on the, uh, in the same velocity or acceleration that we're going on now. And we've been pretty successful, not as successful as we need to, but the technology now exists so that people should be on their handheld, be able to see where they can go get those stitches out or where they can go to get their tonsils out and see what their copay is going to be and make sure that it's have, a, have a quality measure that they can look at, all right, here's the five, the two hospitals and the three clinics where I can get this work done, and here's what it's really going to cost, and here's the quality of each one. And as we begin to get that uh, on a more widespread, widespread basis, I think that's going to be a part of the difference. Uh, again, trying to have more, uh, make sure that people have a medical home and you get, you get to their, before their potentially chronic illnesses, explode and, and, and not only cost a large amount of money, but, but really uh, limit their ability to work, limit their ability to have uh, quality of life. If we can get to them sooner, we know that that is another place where real cost savings happens on, on a regular basis. We're, both of our states have been very successful in limiting the, the cost of Medicaid, where we do have a greater degree of control to a certain extent. And you know, some of these things fit back in with each other. Uh, uh, opioids. We have an opioids crisis across the country, and yet doctors and dentists and everywhere were still prescribing 30 days of opioids, and they say, call me if you still have pain after three days. Well, if, if I'm going to call you anyway, why are you giving me 30 days of prescriptions? And there's no easy way to dispose of the leftovers, right? They're just waiting there for some kid to steal them. Um, not talking about my child. I'm talking about some other child who might be going through the house. Uh, but anyway, I think we've had now almost three years. We're into our third year of, of essentially per capita flat uh, Medicaid cost expansion, right, uh, or acceleration. I think that's got to be the goal of, of taking those lessons and then expand them to the overall public. Yeah, we're taking a number of steps. First, we formed the Governor's Council on Healthcare Innovation, so being, bringing both from the NGO world to our hospitals, other healthcare, to say, how do we start to crack this code? And sometimes, no, this is going to be long-term process of coordinated care and doing additional steps like that. Going back to Medicaid expansion, if two-thirds of the folks that are expanded are now getting primary care instead of waiting until they're at their worst and going the most expensive, that certainly, which would be the ER, that certainly will long-term bend the cost curve. We've taken, um, as a state, what we call reference-based pricing. We've actually negotiated with our hospitals to say at least for the state employees and their families, you know, there are some that are, depending on what the procedure is, depending on where it is, you can have 6x price disparities among hospitals. So we've tried to target it, even though we're individually negotiating largely about 230% of what Medicare pays. We started, and you hear a lot in the private sector that they turn around and have their own private health clinics, right? And if you bring it closer and you actually incentivize both attending and making sure they're taken care of it. So we started, we have five health clinics um, 
that are state-run for state employees, no deductible going in. If I look at that and the reference-based price, I think I'm saving about $25 million a year. All right. Well, we have time for a couple of audience questions. There are some people with microphones. Um, and so please wait until the microphone gets to you. Here's, we have one over here while you're walking over there to our first questioner. Uh, I will ask you to please uh, remember we're taping this for an audience outside the room. So tell us who you are when you ask your question. And please make it a question, not a speech. Go ahead. Uh, hello. My name is Chantal Kemp. Um, I'm an alumni of Green City Force. Actually, Green City Forest has urban farmers in New York City. So my question is, what is the state doing to include farmers in the conversation of lowering health costs? And also, how are you guys making provisions for nutrition and doctors and hospitals to kind of combat that issue? Governor Willick. Yeah, from an AmeriCorps perspective, we actually started Food Corps right out of Montana to try to make it a lot closer. Um, I fundamentally also, on a whole different tangential piece, I mean, look, 20% of our kids, mostly all throughout um, the country, suffer from food insecurity issues. So we've done a lot by trying to take away the stigma. If we can bring breakfast into the classroom, we know that if kids are getting fed cannily, their math scores increase, the disciplinary problems decrease. Uh, I think from an individual ag producer, we also know, and Montana relies heavily on ag, if we can keep more of our food dollar in-state, you're going to do a lot better. So I could take you to incredible both schools and other programs where we're relying more and more on the local food movement. And I think that's, there are a number of governors that have pushed for that uh, a, a, a zero uh, tolerance for childhood hunger. And it is a full-time hard job. I know we've cut Jamie Van Leeuwen, do you know, is that, are we down 60%? Is it? So we've reduced 65% in the last four years. Uh, and that is, again, working with the schools. We are, don't have centralized control of the schools, so we have to really reach out and make a proposal so that it attracts school districts to work with it. Uh, also, the whole food-to-table movement becomes a way of getting more high-quality food into, uh, into schools. Uh, and we partner with some of the nonprofits. There's a, uh, a guy who lives in Boulder named Kimball Musk, and he has a wonderful restaurant in, uh, in Denver called The Kitchen, uh, and now he's got one called Hedgerow, but he also is in Chicago, he's in Memphis, he's in Los Angeles, and he creates a foundation based around his, his restaurants and raises money to put in these gardens in middle and high schools and elementary schools, and the kids, not only do the kids help grow the food, but the, they, the, the foundation helps train the kitchen staff of the school to cook from scratch for the kids and then to have the kids understand, to be part of learning how to cook with, with basic uh, whole foods. And it really is a remarkable, he's up to, I think by the end of this year, he'll be at 200 schools. It's really a great program. Another question, over here. Thank you. Justine Handelman, the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And first, I want to say thank you for the work you've done to make sure that people have access to coverage. Um, one question I have is we know that it's not only your genetic code that drives health, but your zip code. Um, and many things that are happening in the community around social determinants of health. Can you speak a little bit to what you think is the role of communities, the states, the federal government, health plans, providers, and communities, and other organizations to address that issue? Well, I think that 
certainly health disparities based on community can be significant. Like uh, when I first came in, I did a health improvement plan for the entire state. I know if you're an American Indian in Montana, you're likely to live 20 years less. So how do you address some of those core issues at the beginning? Um, you said you're from the Blue Cross Association. The Montana plan actually put together a traveling truck for vaccinations and healthcare to try to bring to make sure that folks have care in their community. Now, another thing, like, look, I, state of Montana is 147,000 square miles. Not only do you have food deserts, you have healthcare deserts to a certain degree. We also know it's just but one example. States that didn't expand Medicaid, rural hospitals are closing six times faster than those that did. So especially where, from my perspective, both what we can do with our tribal nations, what we can do in some of our rural areas, absent that Medicaid expansion, absent partnering with some of our insurers and our providers, um, you know, nobody's life should be dictated by the zip code in which they were born or they were raised. And I think that often it's the creative solutions that can happen right there on the ground um, in a state rather than coming from Washington, D.C. And, and I'll just echo, the, echo that and add that as a, ex, a recovering geologist, I think I'm the only governor to have a master's in geology in, in the history of the country, but I love maps. And that I mean, rocks. <laughs> that, that would be two-thirds of a pun. P-U. Um, but, but maps offer such a great, powerful tool to be able to go out and we can map. Certainly in Denver, we mapped uh, uh, lead, uh, kids with lead paint poisoning. And we were able to identify exactly where those buildings were and where those neighborhoods were where they had the high concentration of lead paint. Uh, Baltimore, actually, I give Martin O'Malley, he was the first one to kind of really work on that. But we're in, we're in the 21st century, right? We have the algorithms available to look at all kinds of geographically determined healthcare outcomes and address them in real time. Okay, another question. Hello, Bob Fike, uh, retired from the pharmaceutical industry. Question for you on the states being able to run the individual systems versus the federal government. Discussions about the efficiency of that, replication of the, of the, of the office people necessary to have duplicate processes versus a nationwide system. Has there been discussion of the pros and cons of that? Yeah, I think people talk about it all the time, and I don't think, well, I shouldn't say that. Lots of people argue against a single nationwide system. Without question, it would be more efficient. It would almost certainly have higher outcomes. The, the challenge is how do we get from here to there? And I think that's been, uh, that has been a thorn in the side of every health reformer uh, for the last 30 years, I think, it's fair to say, right? More than that. <laughs> I mean, that fight goes back to the 1930s. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a chance to ask a question, and then we're going to close up. I guess um, I'm intrigued by the concept that there's still bipartisanship among the governors, that among the governors there are still centrists in both parties. And we just don't see very much. I mean, Senator Baucus is in the audience. He, he doesn't see a lot of people like he used to be in Congress now. Um, do you think it's threatened at the gubernatorial level, or do you think you are going to be, because I mean, we are in such an amazingly partisan, divided country, you know, a frighteningly divided country, can you build out from that as governors, or is it shrinking, but partly with healthcare and partly in general? Yeah. Um, 
it's always threatened. I mean, the, the partisanship that we're surrounded with starts at, I mean, starts with the viciousness of the campaigns and the, and the attack ads. You know, I always say attack ads, you, don't, you never see them in the private sector, right? You never see Coke attack Pepsi. It would work. Pepsi's sales would go down. Pepsi would have to attack Coke. Coke would attack Pepsi. You'd diminish the sales in the entire product category of soft drinks. We're diminishing the product category of democracy with all these attack ads. And that creates, right from the start, a bitterness after the elections. It makes it harder for people to work together. And, you know, many, not all con of Congress, many of Congress, many in the U.S. Senate, didn't actually work in retail or get out and, and, and understand what it's like to make a payroll and what it's like to deal with angry customers. Right? And learn that, you know, preaching to someone, telling them why they should agree with you, generally doesn't work so good. Generally, the only way you're really going to persuade someone to change their opinion is to listen harder. It's to, it's to really get them and repeat back what they're saying so they feel validated and really try to understand what they're saying. And, you know, the governors, we have to balance our budget every year. Uh, we have the National Governors Association. Um, Steve is a, the chair, will be incoming chair of the National Governors Association, which uh, is a great platform by which you can kind of organize and do the best you can to get them, everyone talking together. But they're being pressed at home, each governor, uh, Republicans and Democrats, to conform to certain political standards of their party in their state. So when someone like uh, Brian Sandoval in Nevada, when he steps out and says, oh, I'm going to sign that letter, this is important to me, he's going to get heat for it. Right? And, and, and it goes across, you know, almost every Republican is under tremendous pressure in that. But they haven't backed away. Yeah, I, building off of what John said, I think, or Governor Hickenlooper, I think the attack ads, I think outside spending, Post Citizens United, I think redistricting has made it. So there really is not that much incentive in D.C. to actually work with others. And the more cynical yet accurate approach is that I think a lot of folks there have sort of conflated speaking with doing. Meaning, let's not even talk about healthcare when it takes five years and 20 extensions to pass a six-year highway, federal highway funding bill, something is fundamentally, fundamentally broken. But I also believe that that's where I mean, the rubber does hit the road at the states, that we can't just give speeches. We have to turn around and say, well, how are we going to balance our budget and how are we going to take care of Montanans or Coloradoans or others that don't have health care? How are we going to move an economy forward? So I, I am heartened at a time when you see hyper-partisanship that we were able to assemble at times, like four Democrat governors, four Republican governors, and the one independent Alaska to say, Let's actually come together and find things that we can agree on. And I continue to be optimistic that whether we like it or not, that states will drive parts of these conversations because we're the ones that actually have to get things done. We can't just give speeches. Well, on that note, that's as much time for speeching as we have. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you, audience in the room here. Thank you, governors, and thank you, Spotlight Health, for hosting us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Sanger Katz. I'm at Joanne Kennan. You guys want to off your Twitter handles? I'm at Governor Bullock. <laughs> I'm at Hick4Co. <laughs>
We'll be back in your feed next week, back in our Washington, D.C. studio after two weeks on the road. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs>